Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, where you truly do hear from legends. Glad you're here today with my guest, Josh Cohen, a Baroque trumpet specialist, and this is HFL 110. Of course, you're here on the audio podcast platform, but of course now these interviews are also available in video format on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. And while we're thinking of uh, other media platforms, if you would go to Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review, I would greatly appreciate that. Of course, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL. And if you're not yet receiving the newsletter, you can go to StudioHFL.com and sign up for the newsletter there. Of course, there's also the merchandise store there where you can get some really cool t-shirts and uh, get a heads up on releases and other things. If you would like to become a part of the Studio HFL community, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash studiohfl and choosing one of four tiers of support. Uh, it starts as little as $3 a month, and that's only $36 a year, and you can help support the production of these podcasts. To those that are already patrons, I truly appreciate your support, and you know that I'm continuing to work to provide better and better uh, benefits for you. So again, if you would like to become a subscriber, go to patreon.com slash studio HFL. And now a word about my show sponsors. Pickett Blackburn have established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players, there's an incredible line of mouthpieces, both custom and stock, that you can choose from with expert guidance from Eric Murine. In fact, I just made a visit there this uh, past week, and Eric and Vince Martino were sitting there listening to me test mouthpieces, and I walked out of there with two mouthpieces that I am extremely happy with. Uh, of course, the Blackburn trumpets are the choice of pros like Vince Martino and David Hickman. Design, execution delivery, and customer service driven, and I can speak directly to the customer service aspect, uh, which is fantastic. You can find out more yourself at picketblackburn.com. Messina Covers is your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to a wide variety of color schemes. And if you don't believe me, you can go to the YouTube channel and see the little video I just put out. I had two uh, items just delivered to me from Messina Covers. One was a conductor's bag and the other was their super single I chose the color, I chose the trim, and they embroidered my Studio HFL logo and my signature onto both of those cases. I could not be happier with both of those. And of course, Erica Howard, David Messina, uh, producing absolutely top-notch quality products down there in Louisville, Kentucky. Find out more at messinacovers.net. One of the other great things about small businesses is that you get the opportunity to provide exceptional customer service while delivering exceptional products. And if you haven't uh, yet met Carl Hammond and experienced uh, the Hammond design mouthpieces, uh, you need to do that. Carl is one of the best in the business at listening to what you have to say and then creating a mouthpiece specifically to your specs. That's kind of redundant, specifically to your specs. He provides stock mouthpieces for trumpet, cornet, mellophone, trombone, and tuba, and custom orders for all of those, plus flugelhorn. Everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. The Eastman Music Company has become a force to be reckoned with by manufacturing and delivering high-quality instruments across the board. 
Eastman Winds provides a line of brass instruments from beginner to pro, and you know they're invested in the quality of every instrument when the one and only Doc Severinsen designed their beginner trumpet model. You can find out more at eastmanwinds.com. And just this past week, I performed the Ewald Quintet on my Eastman B-flat cornet and love the sound. Such an easy playing instrument, great intonation, beautiful sound, especially when you use an actual cornet mouthpiece, not just some cut-down trumpet mouthpiece. Uh, S.C. Shires, another division of the Eastman Music Company, offers a complete line of brass instruments for the discerning musician. Stock options are available, but custom orders are where Shires has made their mark. As both an Eastman and a Shires artist, I can attest to the quality of horn in my hands no matter what my performance situation. Of course, I mentioned my Eastman cornet. I've also got my Eastman flugelhorn, could not be happier, and my Shires B-flat CVLA XL, and my Shires number no. 5 C trumpet. <laughs> the C trumpet just sings like you wouldn't believe. You need to check them out at seshires.com. So if you don't know much about Josh Cohen, well, you're about to learn an awful lot. And you're also going to find out uh, he's not just an amazing performer, but he also knows uh, the real history, the background behind the Baroque repertoire. I uh, hope you enjoy this interview with Josh Cohen. And here we go. Josh Cohen, welcome to my podcast. Glad to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here. How are you? Doing all right. Doing okay. Uh, I've been listening to the first cut edits of my solo CD that I recorded in January, so I've been doing a lot of heavy listening. Um, I got that uh, little snippet you sent me the other day of the uh, A Blossom Fanfare. Yeah. Holy cow, dude. That sounds spectacular. Thank you very much. You know, the funny thing about that is um, that was after six hours of recording. Um, everybody had left, um, and it was the easiest day of recording of, of the CD. Mm -hmm. um, and the producer just sat there. We turned off the lights in the church, and he just let me do like 20, 20 takes or so. And, uh, yeah, no, yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's something I've been playing since I was a kid on piccolo trumpet, and then right when I got a real <laughs> instrument and started you know doing it slowly, messing around with different articulations, different speeds on the way up and on the way down, and mm -hmm. you know because I mean it is a so you can play it many different ways. Um, and there's a lot of good versions of it, and hopefully well, yeah, I thought your phrasing was really it, it's not a version I'd heard before, and I'm thinking okay next time I play that. I'm going to do that. You know, <laughs> some just some really nice. Uh, it's not like you just have to blaze through it, right? Like I think a lot of people try to do. Right. I mean, a lot of people who are trying to play it. I mean, I I guess there was some sort of bud, not Corona kind of uh, website going on where people are <laughs> all doing different things all at the same time and putting them online. You know, most of the people I think are just trying to hit the notes. <laughs> you know, right? make sure the notes come. Um, you know, once you can do that, there are other things you can do with with you know the little bit that you're given, which a lot of people think Bach actually wrote. Uh, you know, and that Reicha was just holding it in that picture, but no one's exactly sure. But yeah, well, you know, I mean, we can get into all that sort of thing. I, I uh, what is it? There's still debate over whether the Brandenburg II was actually written for trumpet or and and i don't know maybe the look on your face is is given away that you've got a good answer for this no I, I i am by no means a musicologist but what i do know is that the autograph uh score 
and the part has the word trumba on it. And I do know that Bach knew the difference between a trumpet and a horn. And, <laughs> but there is a version later before he died that I believe that it said trumba or corno. So, I mean, I, I think that you can make the argument that maybe, you know, trumpet players might not have been able to play it. And so give it to a horn guy. But the original definitely says trumba on it. And, mm -hmm. and trumba meant nothing to Bach except for trumpet. Right. Um, whether it was, was one of the circular ones or whether it was a long trumpet, that nobody knows. Right. Um, but it, it definitely was written for trumpet first. Uh, but I don't, from what I've read about the pieces, I don't know if there's any um, contemporary contemporaneous account of it ever being performed. I mean, when you look at what he wrote it for, he wrote it as an audition to be the Duke of Brandenburg's or Margrave of Brandenburg's com court composer, and he didn't get the job. So, I mean, there's no evidence that this piece was ever performed in his lifetime. So everybody, you know, is talking about, oh, what pitch should it be played at? Mm -hmm. Should it be at 415 or 4 392? I mean, there's no evidence of it being played at all when he was alive. So who knows? Wow. See, this is, this is an angle that I'm just not, uh, well, I'm familiar with, but not that as part of my uh, regular vocabulary, you know, it's like 440 is it, man, you know, that's where I exist. And, right. you know, to um, think about early music and period practice, performance practice. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, re the reason 415 is, is a common pitch um, for what we now codify in like this early music Baroque what we call Baroque pitch um, is because uh, Handel's tuning fork was at like 416. Um, mm -hmm. And they know that. I mean, you know, the, all the, the pitch back then was entirely dependent on the pitch of the organ wherever you were. So, and, and those were different everywhere. In France, they tended to be much lower. That's why some people think that, you know, Bach was writing for a French style orchestra. So maybe you could do Brandenburg at 392, which would actually make it in the key of E flat. And, you know, I mean, there's all these different arguments, but basically what, what's happened since about the 70s or late 60s um, with early music is that if you're playing Baroque music, any music primarily between 1650-ish and, you know, basically even Mozart or up to Mozart, um, you'd be playing at 415 just to have a kind of a standard what most people do when they're using early instruments. Mm -hmm. And in classical music, uh, which I, I don't get hired to play a lot of that, um, but I do sometimes, and, and that pitches at 430, which is really mind-bending because I don't have perfect pitch, but I have perfect relative pitch where mm -hmm. I could hear a certain note and then gauge go up. And I mean, I, I don't see colors when I hear notes. Right. I'm not one of those kind of freaky people, but I do have perfect relative pitch. And, and for me, 430 is the most difficult thing to get used to because it splits 415 and 440 in half. Mm -hmm. And it, it's really, it sounds like really sharp Baroque pitch or really flat modern pitch. <laughs> and I, I absolutely do not like playing in 430. I mean, I have to when we do Mozart Requiem, which is performed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but people usually hire me to do, you know, harder stuff that isn't just like Mozart, you know. Right. I do get hired for that. Um, and when it pays really nicely, I, I, I will do those jobs. But most people mm -hmm. can, you know, you can get a lot of different trumpet players to play classical music. It's not that terrible. Well, uh, I'm one of those guys. And in fact, uh, this past, uh, oh my gosh, it was a concert right before the lockdown. It was in February. And we did Mozart 40 with one of the regional orchestras I play with. And I don't know if you can see the uh, brass uh, beginner, good grief, brass for beginners 
trumpet yep. I got back here. Yep. So I got a set of those and I gave it uh, one to the second trumpet player. We had about six weeks. I said, you know, if you feel up to it, let's do it. And I talked to the music director and he said, okay, if it sounds good, well, let's do it. Well, it worked out great. You know, it played well. I, I actually worked for them a little bit and, and yeah, I, you know, I did a very, I, I, he sent me one a long time ago because my little daughter plays a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he sent me these F crooks for Brandenburg mm -hmm. about six months ago or something. And I put them in there and within 35 seconds, I was able to play Brandenburg relatively well. Mm -hmm. And I sent him a little clip and he, I think he put the clip somewhere, but mm -hmm. you could totally play Brandenburg on those instruments. They, they have a modern sound, but if you're really like wanting to start off on a Baroque instrument, they're, they're the absolute best that you can get. I'm having a blast with it. No pun intended. Right. But yeah. you know, it's a, uh, what I really appreciate about it, even with playing a modern mouthpiece on there is you really do get, you really do get a good sense of what that tone color was like. And it's, oh, yeah. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's the right sound for that, you know, the Mozart and the Beethoven, I think, uh, and Handel, Haydn. Um, yeah, so it, not that we're going to try to incorporate it on everything. Sure. But uh, it was nice to get my feet wet, you know, performing uh, that one. Yeah, it's it's a much different experience uh, playing without the without valves. I mean... For me, especially in Baroque music, when when you when you talk about you know you could do all this stuff on piccolo. I mean, I I, I was a Maurice Andre worshiper when I in the '80s when I was growing up, and mm -hmm. I loved listening to Stephen Burns play mm -hmm. uh, piccolo trumpet, an amazing player. Ed Carroll, of course, you know, Rolf Smedvig. I went to the you know Empire Brass Institute when I was in high school. I mean, he was, you know, just like there's not many. Piccolo players better than those guys, and um, but what I quickly realized though is that you know these I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this sound uh, not like I'm a big fat jerk, but when you have a <laughs> when you have a piccolo trumpet, you have ha literally half the tubing of a baroque trumpet. So when you have a, the tone of a baroque trumpet is literally twice as good as a piccolo trumpet or more. <laughs> um, no matter I you know I I've heard amazing you know piccolo trumpet players all my life and. Even the ones with the best sound, like the most round, open, usually a rotary valve kind of thing to make it a little darker, they don't compare to even, you know, a halfway decent Baroque trumpet sound. Because mm -hmm. they're just, and it's not their fault. It's just they don't, they don't have the overtones because they don't have the length. Mm -hmm. And so I made a conscious decision when I was in college. I was studying with Charlie Schluter. Um, and at the same time, also studying with uh, my first Baroque trumpet teacher, Fred Holmgren. And I made the conscious decision that I, I, I'm going to, you know, after my senior recital, I sold my shirts or pickle. I played Brandenburg once mm -hmm. on a modern trumpet, <laughs> one time. Mm -hmm. And I've done it well over a hundred or more times on Baroque trumpet. And it, there's just, for me, there's no, there's no question that one sounds better than the other. Yes, you could sound cleaner on a piccolo trumpet, um, but, you know, you're getting, you know, a lot of advantages besides the valves is that there's half the tubing. And you're usually on a really small mouthpiece. Baroque mm -hmm. my Baroque trumpet mouthpiece is probably a, the size of a one. Wow. Um, not not for Brandenburg. Brandenburg is the only piece, or the only key in F, mm -hmm. is the only instrument I use a different mouthpiece than than everything else. Mm -hmm. B flat, C, um, and D trumpet are all pretty like almost a one mm -hmm. size mouthpiece. Um, yeah, you know, well, piccolo trumpet is accessible to everybody. Right. And and I will say now 
uh, Chris Hasselbring, of course, is helping to make the, the natural and Baroque trumpet more accessible to the general public. You know, you don't have to go out and spend, uh, you know, thousands of dollars on the, the replicas. Right. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I play piccolo trumpet all the time and it's, sure. it's the go-to for, you know, for weddings because you don't have to spend all that extra time, you know, on the natural trumpet, Absolutely. learning how to walk that tight tightrope. I think there's a wonderful place for the piccolo trumpet when you're playing like Stravinsky, that all that kind of really high stuff that needs to cut through like a knife through an orchestra. Yeah. I mean, but you know, and, and for weddings, I mean, you know, and, and modern trumpet players, I mean, let's face it, a lot of them like do wedding gigs. Sure. And not, not everybody's going to have a Baroque trumpet. I mean, I've actually done a few weddings on Baroque trumpet when they specifically asked for Baroque trumpet. Um, mm -hmm. I even played a couple of funerals, believe it or not, where someone the deceased wanted to hear the trumpet shall sound um, mm. at their own funeral, or I, I guess he wanted the relatives to hear. I, I don't know. Sure. Um, but yeah. So, but yeah, the piccolo trumpet is is very accessible. I mean, I mm -hmm. teach modern trumpet. I have two pretty good high school students who are going to be seniors, mm -hmm. and it's an awful time for them. I mean, one of them right. won all state Virginia this year, but they canceled everything. So, I mean, he has it like you know he won the audition. And then, you know, right. it's just, it, it's a horrible time for, I feel terrible for students and for all musicians, you know, right. It's awful. Right. Um, so you said you made this decision your senior year of college, right? That, that you were, but it was probably more my junior year. I mean, so I loved studying with Charlie, but I, it was, I knew I wasn't going to be a principal trumpet player in an orchestra. So that. what was it that, that you heard or who did you hear that, that you're like, okay, that's the that's the path I want to go. That's the sound. Well, my first year of college, I actually um, I went to Northwestern for a year and studied with Chickowitz. Um, and when I was there, there was a master class by a gentleman at the time named Paul Plunkett. Um, and Paul Plunkett was an Australian guy who studied Baroque trumpet in Europe um, and was starting to do solo stuff. And he came to give a master class, and the first thing he played. And he said this, he's like, I'm not going to do an Australian accent, but he said, for all of you guys who think a Baroque trumpet can't be as clean as a piccolo trumpet, well, just listen to this. And he played the Rika fanfare. And it was virtually almost perfect. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I mean, and so I left Northwestern because there was no one to teach that there. And I went to NEC in Boston and mm -hmm. found a Baroque trumpet teacher. And I, had, and I got a double degree in both with Charlie Schluter and Fred Holmgren. So that's, that's about when I decided I was done with modern trumpet. Were you, perf were you finding performance opportunities even at that time? In college, yeah, I got one of my first, I had my first couple of gigs on Baroque trumpet were in Boston when I was still in school. Um, one was playing uh, the Shoots Christmas Story uh, with a group called the Spectrum Baroque Ensemble. And the other one was playing third trumpet in Boston Baroque, which is still a group mm -hmm. in Boston. Um, and I got to play, uh, I think, Bach's third suite, and I was playing the third trumpet part. Um, and then right after I graduated, I went to McGill in Montreal, and that's where I started really gigging. And then mm -hmm. I got started, then I moved back to the States and still had gigs in Montreal and was starting to get more in the States. Okay, uh, I'll edit this out, um, but I'm curious, how old are you? I am 46. Okay, uh, I, I interviewed Jeff Nelson yesterday afternoon. Yeah. And uh, he was at McGill. And I was just trying to think if you guys would have been there I roughly the same time. I think we might have been. 
Uh, yeah. But you know, I, I I didn't run around with the modern brass people. I was hanging out mostly with with um, you know recorder players and baroque violinists and pretty sopranos and um, you know early music people. Um, yeah. I had a couple of friends in the modern um, brass thing, but I, I you know he might have been. I don't know when was he there. I, I can tell uh, you. I, I don't know. I, I think he was teaching there. Okay. Yeah, I was there in '95 to '97. I, I think it might have been a little bit before then, but okay. Um, yeah, so it's funny you say you know I wasn't hanging out with the modern brass guys. It's like I expected you to say I was hanging out with the cool guys, you know, all playing <laughs> period well, instruments. You know, I mean, like that. You know, who was actually at McGill with me uh, at the same exact time was Tony Prisk. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, Tony is right before he got into New World. He was getting his masters in mo in modern trumpet. And I was getting my master's in Baroque trumpet. So I, I knew him like in 95 through 97. Um, we're still friends right now. I'm actually trying to see if I could help him help me get a job at Peabody teaching Baroque trumpet because he teaches there for modern trumpet. Yeah. Well, because they have a big early music program there. So, um, you know, that's something else that, that you see. Of course, all these universities, myself included at UND, I've started a natural, I started a trumpet ensemble a few years ago, but then... Uh, using those those black plastic uh, trumpets that Chris designed, hmm. I started a natural trumpet ensemble. I mean, okay. and you see this going on everywhere. Jason Doval down at UK. I mean, you know, great uh, natural trumpet studio down there, broke trumpet, and it's he's like, the guy who he's the guy who edited the Brandenburg Two virtual thing that I just put up there a couple of weeks ago. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, Jason and I are good buddies. Yeah, we did, we did the Altenberg for seven trumpets, and he edited that too. He, he's the guy. He was the brains behind it. I, I, I knew wow. the people, and he had the, the know-how. <laughs> well, that's impressive. But, you know, it's it, it's going to come to uh, the demand is going to be there, right? For There's going to be more people wanting to study uh, to start that path going into college, doing the period instrument rather than a graduate program, you know. And so, I, which means they're, yeah. they're going to need teachers They're like you. They're going to need somebody to... I hope job. so. I mean, right now in, in the United States, there are basically three places you could go mm -hmm. with Jason Doval and, and Louisville um, in Kentucky and or wherever he is, Lexington, I think. Lexington, yeah. Um, and then John Thiessen is in New York doing uh, Juilliard. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many students he has, but like there have been a lot of good students coming out of there because they're already good modern trumpet players. Um, and then Indiana... Um, has a program where Chris Quapas teaches there. She's been there for a long time. Those are the only places I know that you could actually study Baroque trumpet in the United States. Right. Um, that, that's it. Um, I have people randomly sometimes calling me for lessons. I don't know if you know Mary Bowden. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Mar Mary wants to come for a lesson this summer if it's safe. Mm -hmm. um, we were supposed to do Messiah together in uh, Miami a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, she was going to play second to me in in with Seraphic Fire, but that got canceled. Mm -hmm. um, but I played with her before. But like you know, she doesn't that that when she teaches at Shenandoah, she's not she's you know not teaching Baroque trumpet. Right. Um, so like, there's really no. Other, I mean, I get random people coming to my house. Um, for a lesson here and there, but I, I would love to teach at a college level. I think I, I for sure I have the experience at least that I could do that. I mean, I, sometimes they really actually want a doctoral student, you know, a, a doctor of broke trouble. I, you know, yeah. I have a master's plus what I would consider 25 years of experience. So right. take that if you want it, if you don't, that's, that's fine. Well, I'm in the same boat, you know, I don't have a doctorate, but I feel like, uh, 
like you, I feel like I'm as qualified, if not more. Right. Yeah, because something. of all the experience that, that we've got. So, um, sure. yeah, you know, all the repertoire that's available, you know, when people think piccolo trumpet or Baroque trumpet, it's like, oh, sure, you know, you think um, Brandenburg or trumpet shall sound. But there's a whole lot of repertoire that, uh, and, and maybe a lot of it sounds alike. Maybe that's why people don't think that there's a lot. But um, what, uh, where'd you start repertoire wise? And, and have you discovered some real gems? Hidden gems. Well, yeah, I mean, we're uh, two different questions. Where I started was I started learning, um, you know, when I finally got a broke trumpet in um, Boston, I started with easy pieces like the personal sonata um, that, you know, sometimes they see it, you know, transposed into B flat, but it's originally for D trumpet, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't go very high. It doesn't go to the high D. It mm -hmm. stays, you know, in, in a relatively medium range. Um, and then I played the Corelli sonata, which is a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. um but the stuff i just did on my cd that like i just literally uh probably three days ago they started the producer started sending me first cut things um not fully mixed but like all the mistakes mm -hmm. taken out and you know all the good takes put together and so it sounded like actual music mm -hmm. and the, the, the piece i heard in the 1980s that i heard done only on piccolo was a piece by uh johann samuel endler um, it's a symphonia in F that is, imagine Brandenburg, but like 16 minutes of Brandenburg. Like Brandenburg, you're only playing for four minutes in the first movement and like two and a half minutes in the last movement. That's like, you know, barely. This piece is like five different movements for a solo trumpet in F with two horns and a full string band and oboes. It's a crazy piece that I can't wait till it comes out on Baroque trumpet because it's, it'll be the first recording of it. And so mm -hmm. I found, I mean, some of these gems that I found were actually things that people found in the 80s that played on piccolo trumpet. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm just some, doing some of these things for the first time on, on, on period instruments. Yeah. But there is a lot, there's so much music out there from all different um, parts of Europe. And, and some of it sounds similar, but a lot of it is totally different. Mm -hmm. Like the Bohemian composers like uh, Bieber and Schmelzer, that trumpet stuff doesn't sound anything like Torelli. And they were roughly at around the same time. Mm -hmm. And then you've got handle stuff and, and box trumpet parts are completely different. And then you have French music, which is mostly fanfare type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of good music from all over Europe and none of it sounds exactly the same. Okay. So, you know, learning Baroque slash natural trumpet. Oh, and, and I'm going to back up. Uh, Back in 2003, I did this natural trumpet workshop down in Blooming, Rick Serafinoff and Bob Barkley. Oh, yeah. You know, and I walked away. You can see that, maybe a little bit of that back there, too. It's, you know, walked away with, uh, well, I can't remember the make. Uh, Honline, probably. Yes, thank you. That's it. And functional trumpet in D. And, and I, it's at 440, but I've got a tuning bit to take it down to 430. Um I love that, you know, and that was my first experience actually playing. And I bought a Tills mouthpiece, you know, tried to get the right right equipment for that. And uh, that was great. Uh, then the, the next experience I had was just a couple of years ago. I had uh, John Foster and Vinny DiMartino come through and do their Sound the Trumpet uh, program at UND. Yep. Holy cow. I mean, of course, you know, I've learned since that John's kind of... The man, right? And and I actually I 
texted him the other day. He was like, oh, yeah, Josh, I know. I don't think he said he knew you personally, but he's like, oh, you know, he likes his work. So, you know, uh, but, yeah. man, to hear it and watch somebody get around the horn so easy, you know, John uh, is great, uh, great on that. But uh, why did I bring that up? Oh, here's why I brought that up. It's one thing to learn to play the trumpet, right? But then it's the style, right? you know, to learn the proper phrasing and articulation. And I think, boy, that is where, that's where the real study has to come in, right? That's why I didn't study with a trumpet player. Um, <laughs> seriously, I, I, I studied with a Baroque violinist. And when I was at McGill is where I, uh, I learned the most about style, studying with the Baroque oboists and Baroque violin players. Those are the ones who really know how to use their instrument and the gestures of the Baroque style better than anybody. Um, mm -hmm. Like because they they're they're leading their sections and they know how the length the note lengths um, for certain things are just kind of known things that are written down in treatises but not trumpet treatises. Mm -hmm. um, most of the trumpet treatises that you you read are about you know just uh, you know kind of fanfare type things. They don't tell you a lot about the different kinds of um, nuance that goes on when you're shaping a line of music that's why i you know i when i was at mcgill I, my technically my teacher was a cornetto player by the name of douglas kirk mm -hmm. i almost never really studied with him very much at all i elected to, to study with with the violinist chantal remayard and a flutist by the name of claire guimond these are people all lived in montreal boys mm -hmm. who's no longer with us named washington mclean um those guys, that's how you learn about the style. And you're mm -hmm. right. I mean, learning how to do the, the holes and just being able to play without valves, that's, that's the first step. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, you, there are a lot of players who could play um, very well on, you know, technically on the Baroque trumpet. Um, but when you listen to them against more seasoned players who, who really have, like you said, taken the time to figure out Baroque nuance and phrasing, mm -hmm. there's a huge difference between someone who could just play the notes mm -hmm. and someone who makes it into something um, a bit more alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you say there wasn't necessarily a treatise, or at least were you referring to Bach? Well, Bach's I mean, there, there, was a, there was an Altenburg treatise that came at the end of the 18th century in 1795, um, you know, where the Altenburg Concerto for Seven Trumpets comes out of that treatise. It's at the mm -hmm. back of it. Um, and then there was another one or a couple of ones that were at the beginning of the 17th century um, that talk about different kinds of uh, articulation, theory, leery, and all this stuff. I don't usually do any of that stuff. Um, I, I've used modern um, articulations and altered them a bit to suit how the note lengths are supposed to be. Mm. Um, I, I can't, I've tried to do the you know, the 17th century teary, leery, like these kind of weird back tongue things. I, I, I can't do that. Just like I can't flutter tongue either. You know, <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not a jazz player because right. I can't, I can't, there's some, some things I just can't do. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the uh, treatises, like, you know, especially the music I, I usually get hired to play is mid 18th century music. And so those treatises from the 17th century don't tell me a lot about how to phrase music from the future. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, and consequently the Altenberg is from the future. It's not telling me what they did 60 years before that, you know? So it's a lot that that's why a lot of the books that were written uh, for oboe and for flute, especially, and the violin Mozart's dad wrote a treatise for violin, um, but the, he was a Baroque composer pretty much, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, 
So that's where I, I learned how to do phrasing is from listening to violinists and oboists mm -hmm. and not trumpet players. This, this question just popped into my head regarding tempo. You know, I wonder, were there some eye-opening, ear-opening moments uh, as you started studying these pieces where you realized that maybe this should be twice as fast, twice as slow? <laughs> well, a lot, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, I play Brandenburg a lot, or I hope that I get to. I used to before this <laughs> pandemic, but um, a lot of, especially in that piece, sometimes the the nature of the difficulty of the piece can help dictate what the tempo is. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, Brandenburg, I mean, I've heard recordings of it that are so slow that I would literally want to slap the conductor in the face and tell him, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you know, in some pieces you could, you, you, you know, Brandenburg actually works better without any conductor. Just the violin is just starting and you just play. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, tempos tend, if you listen to old recordings of Maurice Andre, um, of uh, like a Telemann concerto or a Telemann sonata, you notice how slow the tempos are. Um, I'm not quite sure that he, he just wasn't doing things because he could do them himself. You know, that slow and that beautiful mm -hmm. and and with that phrasing that he had um I, I don't think that there's any way possible on baroque trumpet to do some of those tempos and and have enough gas to make it to the end of the movement <laughs> let alone the rest of the piece right. um, but tempos tended to be a lot dictated on dance characteristics and so some of the tempos you hear especially in fast movements in baroque music might have moved a little bit more i mean no one will really know but you can't imagine someone dancing a minuet one. No, no one would do that. Um, so a lot of the recordings, as soon as you got to the 70s and 80s, people started using these dance characteristics and helping that dictate what the tempo could be. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't work in the extra, you know, if, if a composer writes Largo, that means he, he wants it slow. Mm -hmm. But on Dante, that didn't necessarily mean slow as molasses. Right. You no, know, it depends on what tempo you're walking, you mm -hmm. know, because it's a walking tempo. You can walk quicker or you can walk slower. Right. Um, so tempo, because, you know, unlike, you know, Beethoven actually had tempo markings. I mean, he had metronomes made for him so he could explain exactly what tempos he wanted. But there was none of that in the Baroque period, that, you know, that mm -hmm. I'm aware of. So when they wrote a tempo, it was kind of in general. But we don't know, like, what a 17th century Allegro, if that was the same right. thing as it was in the 18th century. It could have been, but it might not have been. This is another quick sponsor break to remind you to check out Messina Covers for great custom case options. Eastman Winds and SE Shires for exceptional quality from the professional model to the beginner model. Hammond Design for their incredible HD experience. And, of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. And now back to Josh's interview. A uh, little aside here. Are you familiar with uh, Radio Lab podcast and NPR program? No. Um, Radio Lab, and uh, the it's a 17-minute episode called Speedy Beat. Speedy and, Beat. Yeah, it's all about um, Beethoven's markings the, and oh. Beethoven, Beethoven 5 uh, is the, the music, the source music they use for that. And it and how there's all this debate on, you know, whether Beethoven really meant it to be this tempo or, you know, uh, his his metronome was broken 
or you know the the what's the um manuscript you know whoever's writing the manuscript put in the wrong tempo um totally possible and, but it's a fascinating episode and uh, i've listened to it and shared it with a few students just to say you know um well first of all it's fascinating but then second of all it kind of makes you wonder how, sometimes how arbitrary tempos can be you know absolutely it's like there could be a pocket where things just feel great but it could be a wide pocket right I mean, you could do it a little bit faster, a little bit slower. It still feels good. And then there's those pieces. If you go too fast, it's just, it flies off the rails, <laughs> right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, Speaking but, of Beethoven 5, I actually got to play that on Baroque trumpet or classical trumpet um, with Kent Nagano, um, who conducts the Montreal Symphony. And he very rarely does early music groups. But I did it. Um, I never get hired for top form music except for like two different times. And one of them was to play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Four nights in a row, sold out. Amazing fans they have up there in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, but to be honest with you, since I mostly play Baroque music, playing Beethoven was the, some of the hardest uh, amounts of playing I've ever had to do. It was like, you know, people say, oh, you know, when you play Brandenburg and something else in the same concert, that's got to be much harder than Beethoven. Nope. Playing Beethoven loud and like mid-range loud forever mm -hmm. is way more tiring for me than playing high stuff for some reason. Sorry, that um, was an aside too. I no, Beethoven five and I, yeah. I barely ever play Beethoven. <laughs> um, back in 2006, uh, I had my one and only shot so far to play uh, Brandenburg two. And it was with one of my regional groups that I play with. Uh, the first half was uh, fireworks and water music. The second, the, the second half was Brandenburg two and Brandenburg three. And uh, so I asked, you know, the music director, you know, I'm off for the two handle pieces. No, you have to play those as well. So it was a, it was a double on Friday. It was a Saturday morning dress and then Saturday night concert. And I had bronchitis. I mean, it, it was, it was such a, a chore that I actually had my second trumpet player assist me in the first movement and all the, the bum, repeated bum, 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 bum. and then well i played that but then you know all the just the da, 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 repeated da, da. notes yeah uh but holy cow <laughs> that was i i would not have done that concert at all no. well yeah but you know it was i'll never do that again for sure if brandenburg gets programmed um that's all that i'm going to play for that concert so i will do brandenburg first on a on a concert and then have the entire concert go. And on the second half, I'll play Cantata 51, but way far away from, and Brandenburg always has to be first. I won't mm -hmm. go from a low horn to a high horn. Right. It's always gotta be from that coming down. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't normally talk gear on, mm -hmm. on these podcasts, but I'm curious uh, about what kind of instruments you use. Are they instruments made for you? Are they actual um, 200, 300 okay. year old instruments? They, uh, I just got a new horn. So no, they're, they're, they're copies. Mm -hmm. um, I got a new horn made by Matt Martin at Norwich or Norwich. He says it's, it's not mm -hmm. Norwich, it's Norwich, right. Nor Norwich natural trumpet. Um, and he made me one that plays from F415 for Brandenburg, all the way down to C that I would need for Cantata 51. And it's solid nickel, because um, I wanted silver. I wanted a silver trumpet, but it was 
literally like three times more expensive. Mm. I mean, it's solid sterling silver is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so it's nickel, um, which is a very hard metal. Um, and so it's not easily dentable or scratchable or anything. It's, it's mm -hmm. pretty durable. Um, but it looks, it's a silver in color instrument. And it's based off of an instrument made in 1710 by a guy named Kodich um, in Germany. Um, before that, and I still own it, I have an Egger uh, four-hole Baroque instrument, um, which is a copy of something from 1720. Um, and I, you know, I, I use the Egger sparingly now because um, basically when I need it to switch between two trumpets really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but I've gotten so used to my Norwich Baroque trumpet that um, that's pretty much my main horn. My entire mm -hmm. CD is on that trumpet. Um, and it was built for me in 2017. This summer will be the third year I have, I've had it. Yeah. Um, you know, having sat in the orchestra now and played, and, and Mozart 40, I think it was C trumpet the whole way through. You didn't have to worry about, you know, changing crooks. Right. But, you know, I look at some of that music and I think the, the changes had to be so quick that maybe they had another horn sitting there, right? Did they just go ahead, did they actually have time to put those crooks in they, or they did they just pick? Well, one of two things happened. Either they had two trumpets on stage and just right. picked up another one, or they had like a coupler, um, like where it wasn't an entire another crook, but it was a part that just went where the mouthpiece goes that put it down a key, oh. or they would take that out and put it in to make it a higher key. Um, because, you know, most of the instruments did not have, you know, I play with finger holes and I'm not ashamed to say that I do. I mean, there are some guys out there who could play really well without any holes. They just stand there like this. And right. I, I mean, I, I, I try and I'll never be as good as those guys. And they're supposedly using enormously big mouthpieces to help mm -hmm. bend the pitches. Um, I was actually just listening to Mark Bennett, who's giving an interview right now with some Brazilian guys that I did a couple of weeks ago. And he talks about he wants to use, uh, you know, no holes, but he's like, the fact is, is we want to make money. Also, <laughs> people have to hire you or you can't feed your family or pay for your place or whatever. Right. And so the idea, even in Europe, and I have a lot of friends in Europe, Trip, they, there are very few groups that only use no holes. Right. Barely at all. Right. It's a great skill if you can do it fantastic but I, I i'm not i don't practice that way because yeah. i know i'm not going to get hired to do anything with yeah. no holes I, I remember bob barkley saying um the the natural trumpet is the two-hole system right there's one where you you blow in and there's the other where the sound comes out those are the two holes yeah and once once you put vents in there it becomes a baroque trumpet that that is true yes he's He's right. I mean, and then he, and he said, you know, of course, on the natural trumpet, all the notes are exactly where God intended them to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's unfortunately not where audience members might want right. them to be. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That top line F. Uh, and, you know, my wife. Every time I, I practice, she said, um, "I like that F sharp." Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's that's where it is for now. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's tough if you if you listen if you go online after we're done and you look up Julian Zimmermann. Um, and he's a student of a guy named Jean-Francois Madeuf, um, who's also the pioneer of being able to play Baroque trumpets without holes. His student, I, I think, plays even better than the teacher. Hmm. This guy can actually play those Fs 
within even modern ears thinking, wow, this is amazing. And, mm-hmm. and, and he has an amazing sound and he does it all with no holes. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the size of the mouthpiece, it looks like a trombone mouthpiece. Wow. It's huge. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard him play stuff up to the high C, mm-hmm. um, but I've never heard him play anything on F anything. So mm-hmm. maybe he, maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've heard Jean-Francois Madoff play Brandenburg on F no-hole Baroque trumpet. Look, it, the guy's got some cojones, and um, <laughs> it, it is what it is. I, I don't like it, but it's amazing that he can do it. You know, well, um, it's funny. You could almost say that about uh, modern trumpets. You know, valve, valve trumpets. There's an awful lot of stuff that I, I hear that I don't necessarily like. I'm sure. cutting that out. I'm going to edit that out, and I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, and it's impressive too to see people try to cross over. And I shouldn't say try. Uh, I think Allison Balsam has done a nice job. Uh, and I don't know if if you would agree with that, but. Uh, uh, she is an amazing modern trumpet player. Um, her Baroque stuff is, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty good. That's what I'll say. I mean, mm-hmm. I, she's, you know. I'll edit this out. I, I yeah, don't want anybody yeah. to throw anybody under the bus. So. Not, that's what I'll say is that she, um, she's a fantastic modern trumpet player and her Baroque trumpet playing is, is very good. Mm-hmm. It's very good. And um, she's done a lot for two things. Um, showing that um, there could be an amazing female trumpet player as a soloist, which I think is amazing, mm-hmm. and she's fantastic, and that there are really good Baroque trumpet players that are females too. My, my, my uh, choice for my second trumpet player is, her name is Joelle Monroe, um, and she plays with the, um, the old guard in, in Washington, D.C. On mm-hmm. She's their first Baroque trumpet player, and her sound matches mine so well that I use her for everything i can there's um two pieces on the cd for double trumpets and she's she's my second trumpet player and i just got uh the first edit uh for one of those pieces yesterday mm-hmm. and it's fantastic she's you know just an amazing trumpet mm-hmm. player and allison has done a lot for for you know just getting women more involved in in solo brass music and and that's terrific well i think I, about i'm oh. sorry oh yeah yeah, well, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you on that, but I'm thinking, of course, you know, uh, with Mary Bowden and, and Seraph Brass, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. Tina Helseth and her group, and yeah, Tina I, even well, by I, herself. You know, I, I heard, um, I was at NTC, uh, no, the ITG Festival last year in Miami, almost exactly a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to hang out with Mary and a couple of the other girls in that group. Um, and then I went to their um, concert that they did. They did like a 40-minute performance. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Like women, not women. It was just, am- it was great. You know, you know they're, they're one of the best things that have happened. I've seen Tina, Tina's group, and she's amazing too. I don't like the moving around while playing. I think that's kind of, uh, I don't know. You can edit this out too, but I think it's completely ridiculous and that it takes away from the musicality <laughs> of whatever. You know, there's a video of them doing Carmen where they're mm-hmm. marching around the mm-hmm. stage. The playing's nice, but I could do it without the theatrics. Sure. You know, sure. I mean, you know, the, the days of blast are over. You know, that like, you know, the marching around a stage. You know, I, you know I, I didn't like that, but the playing is terrific. Yeah. Um, and I've seen some of Tina's... Um, kind of like jazzy kind of classical things fantastic yeah fantastic 
yeah, it's funny you mentioned Blast. Um, I was in a drum corps that eventually transitioned into Blast. Oh, really? And then I and I still have friends uh, who are in Blast. Uh, well, you know, nobody's in it right now because right. they're not doing anything either. But uh, it's, it's still a thing. People, are st- uh, that, I didn't know that was even yeah, happening still. in Japan. I think it was still it was still on a short run there. So cool. I may I may be wrong. Uh, I, I've been wrong before. Yeah, a couple I, of I times. met Adam Rappa used yeah. to do that, right? Yeah, I I, I met that guy at, at ITG last year too. Yeah. Wow. So, I wanted to ask about the the whole recording thing. Um, you know, I've seen, uh, and I don't know if these were actual sessions or these were concerts that have been recorded, but uh, I love, you know, the conductorless, the true chamber um, experience, right? Where either the, the first violinist concert master leads or, you know, you maybe lead things. Uh, in recording sessions, how do you do that? Do you have somebody actually conducting that? It's a really good question. Um, for the things that had a lot of strings um my one of the producers was actually conducting he's the um he's the dean of arts at uh, american university his name is dan abraham and he used to have a group called the box symphonia that's now kind of defunct right now um but he's a fantastic choral conductor at american university and and Mm -hmm. his first instrument was trumpet and you know it was my brainchild to do this cd and he helped put everything together um, and he conducts. So he conducted uh, the Endler, the thing that had trumpet, two horns, oboe, full strings, timpani. He conducted that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the smaller things where it was like a concerto for trumpet, two oboes, and bassoon, and continuo, we, whoever was the first person to go was leading. Yeah. Um, so ha- half the CD is conductorless. And the bigger stuff, I think the only thing that was conducted was the Endler and the Grautner and the Bond, Capel Bond, um, was a English, little-known English composer of the 18th century, same mm-hmm. time as Handel. Um, and he, he conducted that one because uh, it needed just a little bit of direction because right. um, there was a lot of moving parts like, happening in it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think about half the CD was conducted. Half of it was conductor-less. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, when I'm doing solo stuff, I, I don't want a conductor there. Um, you don't need one and you've already worked out what you're doing. You're not sight reading. So, right. uh, you know, uh, you know, Brandenburg, I, I don't think I've ever done it with a conduct, uh, maybe one or two times I've done it with a conductor. Every other time mm-hmm. it's just look at the first fiddle player, bam, you go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, conductors are, are, are important, especially for choral music. That that's what you need the most for in, in Baroque music. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily instrumental music. Um, even you could do symphonies without a conductor. Um, you know, er, earlier symphonies, not like Mahler or anything like that. But like you know, there are many symphonies. I wish uh, we had not had a conductor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about it, you know, mostly they, you know, they just wave around their arms until the music's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like sometimes it's necessary. I mean, when you're doing Messiah, um, you could have someone conduct from the harpsichord. That's mm-hmm. that's easily. Well, not easy, um, but that, that's totally doable. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, most of my messiahs are conducted, like with a, there's a conductor, mm-hmm. mainly for the chorus. So here's a, uh, what's the word? Here's a, oh man, I'm, gonna, I'm having a senior moment and I'm not even that senior yet. Uh, here's a contestable question. Um, sure. Vibrato. Mm-hmm. 
does it exist in in baroque music okay um for the trumpet not so much um for other instruments um in all the treatises that i've read especially in the mozart leopold mozart treatise violin is supposed to be a coloring at the ends of long pitches to give it a little bit more color okay but that's not constant wavering um, because what, what vibrato has turned into now, at least for me, um, is, is a way to control terrible pitch. Um, and in, in Baroque times, the, the counterpoint was the most important thing, being able to hear one layer over top of the other that create chords and fast, you know, moving sections. You can't do that if everything is out of tune. Mm -hmm. So they, they absolutely did not use vibrato on every note. If they used it at all, it would happen to color the ends of long swelled notes um, to give it just a little bit of a shimmer at the mm -hmm. end. It, it was an ornament, not a constant. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's pretty, you know, well documented in, in, you know, of course we don't have recordings from them, but you have many people talking about it mm -hmm. in writing mm -hmm. who, you know, people back then they didn't ha have the internet to distract them from everything. So they were very detailed in their writing. And Charles Burney, um, you know, went around Europe listening to concerts. He was a historian and a music critic. And, and, and there's even a, you know, a part, he, he went to a, a Messiah concert in the 1760s after Handel was dead, but still broke trumpet wasn't completely mm -hmm. just turned into the classical, you know, playing C's and G's all the time. Um, he, he specifically writes about how the F's were out of tune. Every time there was an F, mm -hmm. the trumpet was you know, out of sorts, is what he put mm -hmm. it, or something like that. Meaning to me that um, our version of perfect and what we'd like to hear in a recording or at a live performance is nothing like what they probably heard back then. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everything was a big hot mess back then for the trumpets, missing notes, playing out of tune notes because they didn't some you know they might not have used holes i mean there's an argument that you could say that there were holes back then um my the person who made my instrument is convinced of the fact that they did mess around with holes mm -hmm. even back in box day they weren't commonplace but they, they there's evidence of their holes being in original instruments mm -hmm. so um but they were I, i'm not going to lie and say they had four hole systems like i do they, they did not but mm -hmm. they definitely experimented with one hole in the back bow. But your mm -hmm. question was about vibrato. And, you know, for trumpets, it, it's not really, uh, you don't play a lot of long notes. Um, but you certainly probably could, you know, use a little at the end of phrases. I, you know, I don't really use vibrato at all um, mm -hmm. in, my, in my playing. But mm -hmm. definitely string players will use it to color the ends of long phrases. Well, you know, and aside from vibrato, the, the trill is just i think in it's exquisite in baroque playing the, that the trumpet can do those you know whether you call it a lip trill and i guess some of them can be manipulated with events right well not that i would do in a concert or that i would do on a recording there are some that you could use it that way um but that, i mean i i would never use the whole I mean you could open a hole to do a trill and sometimes that really helps get the trill moving mm -hmm. but you I, I you know there's very few even combinations that would work where you would just like rapidly put your thumb back and forth 
to go right. between two notes. It's much easier actually to do it with your with your lips than yeah. than that awkward kind of motion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, trills are, are, are an interesting thing because you know everybody thinks oh baroque music you do you'd start it from the top note. Well, that's true in in a lot of situations in the 18th century. In the 17th century, it was the opposite. You would lean on the bottom note and trill, and then turn out of the trill. Um, like instead of D M, you'd go dam bum bum, and you'd lean on mm -hmm. the bottom note. Right. But when you play Handel and Bach, usually it's from the top. So you mentioned uh, lip trill, but now I'm thinking, you know, like on the back of all the uh, the ITG journals, you know, they usually have. Oh, maybe not on this one, but you know, you've seen the ones where they have the 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 mouthpiece, all these uh, engravings where they have the mouthpiece, or paintings where they have the mouthpiece way over on the side. I play um, off to the side. Well, and I and I wondered, you know, is that by choice? Is it is there something to do with the that the broke mouthpiece that facilitates better on the thinner part of the lips? Well, the reason I did it, uh, and I started playing off to the side of my mouth, uh, probably by the sixth grade, and I started in fifth grade, was because my teeth were flatter against themselves mm -hmm. on this side, over there. Mm -hmm. um, now, cornetto, they, you know, the instrument that the, the black looks like mm -hmm. a black banana. They mm -hmm. literally play that on the corner of their lips. Um, you know, now modern players a lot play it like a trumpet, but right. you all the pictures they're playing it out of the corners of their mouth mm -hmm. um, for me um playing off to the side was um it was never encouraged but since i never had a problem with range no one ever told me i had to stop the only, i'll tell you the only person when i auditioned for colleges that said i will absolutely change your embouchure if you come to michigan and so i didn't go to michigan it was armando gatala um, he basically told me he's like you sound great but we're going to change your everything about what you do and i'm like well i'm not coming there Right. Um, you know, no one else has asked me to change my embouchure. And, you know, I figure if you could play Brandenburg, why do you have to change your embouchure? Well, that was a whole Chickowitz thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. Right? I exactly. Um, I, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of very strange, you know, I mean, look at Dizzy Gillespie. I mean, who plays like that? But he's amazing. He was amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there's many different ways, uh, you know, that you can. The most important thing is, it, does it sound good? I try to have a view of music where a blind person should be able to just listen to you and think that's beautiful. It doesn't matter how you look when you're doing it. I mean, I know there's some broker players that I know that have really weird armatures where they, their neck is back and all these different weird things. But it doesn't matter what you look like when you're playing. It's, it's what comes out of the, the bell. Mm -hmm. um, I have a herniated larynx um, mm -hmm. where uh, the left side of my neck bulges out when I play in the upper register mm -hmm. a lot um, mm -hmm. and I had it checked out when I was in high school um, and originally I thought I was oh because I was a smoke I'm a smoker or whatever it has nothing to do with that it's uh, they're little perforations where you would not even know that they were there unless you played an instrument with a lot of back pressure mm -hmm. and there was a way to fix it um, but the doctor said there's a you know a 20% chance since it's so close to the vocal box that you'll never be able to speak again if something goes wrong so I, I thought about it for about a minute and I said, forget it. I, you know, if I can play what I can already play, mm. why, why am I going to try to change anything? And mm -hmm. so I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, way, that was before I even got into college, before I could even play Brandenburg. Mm -hmm. um, so. so you've got a couple of uh, modern uh, trumpet students 
right? Yep. You'd mentioned that. Um, you take them through the standard repertoire, the Charlier and, and such. Exactly. Uh, in fact, my one of my students just entered a competition yesterday where he was doing Charlier too. Um, he actually did a really nice job. And it, you know, all these things now, they're live, no cut, no edits, just you and your trumpet playing all of Charlier too without messing up hopefully that much. And you know, it's hard. But yeah, it, it brings me back because I was in a youth symphony. Um, I'm from this area where I live in now again, um, right outside of Washington, D.C. And it happens to be the home of one of the better youth symphonies um, in the country. You know, with Gypso in Boston, there's a couple other ones that are really famous, but the Northern Virginia Youth Symphony, which mm -hmm. is now called the National Youth Symphony, um, they changed names since I've been there. Um, you know, I, I, I had to do all this rep. We did Mahler One, we did all these, you know, in high school, like, you know, really high level high school stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to do some of that when I was at college, even though I was doing Baroque and modern. Um, but then since then, I hadn't, you know, done any modern trumpet playing at all. Like I literally only play to when I teach. Mm -hmm. um, but then now that I've had a couple, these students that I have that are now going to be seniors this year, I've had them since fourth grade. Wow. And so I've, I've had them and they're both next to each other in the orchestra. Um, and one of them made first chair all Virginia this year, can't mm -hmm. participate. Um, you know, I don't have, I only have two students. I, I don't have a lot of time. Well, now I have all the time in the world. Right. <laughs> but like, before that, I was gigging a lot and I didn't mm -hmm. like to have to cancel lessons. Um, and, you know, I have a full-time job too. Um, I'm the director of music at a, a little school called the Edlin School for Gifted Students. Oh, very um, cool. Where it's a K through eighth grade um, situation. And I hire a string teacher, a piano person, a woodwind person, since I don't play those instruments. And I teach basically trumpet and baritone. Because um, it's the same. I mean, I don't play the mm -hmm. trombone. I don't play the mm -hmm. French horn. Um, so I only want to teach the instruments that I could do well. Mm -hmm. um, a very small band. Um, but I also teach general music, where we do composers of the month. And they learn about Western music and how the kids are supposed to try to learn how to read treble clef by first grade. We start recorder in second grade. Mm -hmm. um, Are you doing solfege? Uh, no. Um, the, the and that's not a judgment because no, you said the, no. <laughs> the, the chorus teacher and I have different views about solfege. I, look, at Northwestern, there was movable dough. Mm -hmm. um, and when I went to New England Conservatory, they're a very Parisian kind of style of conservatory. So it was fixed dough. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I believe in fixed dough and the choir teacher believes in movable dough. So we, don't, we just agree <laughs> not to do solfege. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I see the advantages of both movable and fixed dough. I just, I had three years of fixed dough and one year of movable dough. And mm -hmm. unless you're a theory person um, and that's what you're going for, fixed dough to me makes more sense. Call something what it is. A C is mm -hmm. always a C. A D is always a D. Right. And, you know, I mean, if you want to learn about theory and, and modulation, then learn theory. You don't, that's my opinion. You don't have to make it, right. you don't have to like, well, it's already hard enough calling the notes what they are like, in sight singing, then then you now have to think about when it's changing key. What is this? This is crazy. <laughs> so, yeah. But no, we we don't do self edge. We you know every good boy deserves fudge and face. Mm -hmm. And you know I, I teach only up to the fourth grade. Um, the band goes until eighth grade. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really. It, 
with this new virtual stuff we're going to do next year, I think I'm going to have to do an enrichment course, which mm -hmm. I will do even more in detail um, uh, music of like uh, composers of Western civilization class kind of thing where they can learn about medieval going to renaissance going to baroque to classical to mm -hmm. you know 20th mm -hmm. century so they have a kind of like a a very short compendium of music history uh, but yeah it, it, i'm fortunate to have a, a full-time I mean, I, i'm getting paid over the summer i got paid during the whole quarantine I, I you know i didn't have to go on unemployment i mean i i just recently took a grant for you know small business people who have lost money because of, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I probably lost twenty to thirty thousand yeah. dollars. Um, but that wasn't my only source of income. So right. I kind of didn't even apply for the early grants and stuff because I, I have so many friends that, that all they do is gig and they have nothing now. At least I had a full time job. Yeah, that's that's me. Yeah. yeah. So and here I am, you know, spending uh, most of my time now taking care of interviews and and all that. But it's 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 great, you know. Um, well, you know, that's a pretty cool thing to know about you. Most people look at you and think, oh, there's a Baroque trumpet player. But then to find out that you're teaching elementary, yeah, yeah. that's a that's a pretty good angle my, <laughs> to add. You know, I, my wife, I have I have like two different lives. Like, um, you know, my daughters see me come home in a tux, you know, and then, you know, then I'm, the next day I'm teaching like K-4 kids doing like little silly little <laughs> songs you know like shaking like you know maraca eggs and stuff right and toddlers i mean you know i'll be honest with you um i would like to just play of course sure um, but i realize how important it is for a new generation of musicians to appreciate classical music and mm -hmm. uh, you know i take um the fourth grade every year goes on a field trip to see me play with the washington bach consort there's a free noontime cantata mm -hmm. where for the whole week of class before they go I teach them about the piece, the instrumentation, um, even though I'm very not religious as a personal choice, but all these cantatas are based upon religion. So we go over the story that the, mm -hmm. the, the piece is about, and then we talk about the individual movements. So when they get to hear this as fourth graders, they already know what they're going to hear. I'm not mm -hmm. just taking it. It's not a music appreciation. I just listen to some classical music. hope you like it. They right. learn Oh, they know more about it than almost everybody else there besides the musicians <laughs> playing. And, 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 you know, the owner of the school appreciates that, you know, she has someone, they give me, um, you can edit this out too. They, in case any of my colleagues are watching, they, yeah, give me okay. 20, they give me 20 paid days to bugger off and do gigs all over the country. Um, well, most, so that means they see the value in yes. you participating in that. Correct. Yeah. 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 Most teachers get 10 days, like sick days, I get 20, which yeah. is significant. I mean, I've yeah. never had to turn down a gig. That's great. Yeah. Um, I wish there were gigs to turn down at the moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I tell you, uh, I, I'm even looking at school starting. I teach at University of Indianapolis and, and just trying to figure out what that syllabus is going to look like and how I'm going to navigate. Uh, because we all flew by the seat of our pants last semester. Sure. You know, and now we've had time to figure out how to really make the, the virtual learning, remote learning work. Well, man, this has been a it's been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I and I really look forward to hearing you play live somewhere in the future and hopefully getting to meet you at an ITG or some other event. You know, I you know, I hope to be invited um, 
you know, as a freelance Baroque trumpet player, like, you know, Jason gets to go to these things because he's with the university. They just right. like, basically probably pay him to go. But, you know, next year's in like Anaheim. And I'm like, yeah. I, I want to go. <laughs> but, I, you know, if Chris Hazelbring brings me there, yeah, he brought me down to there you I, go. He, he brought me down to IDG, um, Florida. Yeah. Um, you know, if he hooks me up for that, I will absolutely be there because I, I totally had a blast the last time mm -hmm. I was there. Um, and, you know, I guess I, I'm just looking forward to hearing the rest of my CD and editing it and getting it out there mm -hmm. um, because I think, you know, a lot of people might know who I am sort of, but not really, um, you know, as far as Baroque trumpet. I get my name out there a little bit more. But you're doing all the right things, right? The whole social media push, you know, all these concerts that you've been putting up. Uh, it's, I mean, that's that's what you got to do, right? Is absolutely. And yeah. you know, this CD, when it comes out, will be unlike most Baroque trumpet CDs. Mm -hmm. no, no one puts stuff in F on a Baroque trumpet CD ever, because the only thing there is, everybody thinks, is Brandenburg. Well, man, thank you. I, I appreciate your time. And uh, I've learned more about uh, natural and broke trumpet than I ever knew before. Um, Thanks for having me. And that's where today's interview ends. But there is more to be heard. Well, usually. Uh, in Josh's case, I did not excerpt anything from this. But normally I excerpt a significant portion from these interviews. And those are available exclusively for my Patreon patrons. You can find out more about how to receive that benefit and others at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Again, to those who are already patrons, thank you, thank you, thank you. Another reminder to visit Apple Podcast and leave both a star rating and a review, and please visit the Studio HFL YouTube channel and subscribe. This has been a production of Powell Music, LLC, and supported by the generosity of Messina Covers. Eastman Wins, S.E. Shires, Hammond Design, and Pickett Blackburn. Once again, I'm your host, Larry Powell. Grateful you spent some time here today with me and Josh Cohen. Be sure to come back next week to visit with another terrific guest. And until then, have a great day and see you later.